Welcome to the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. Join us here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podserve, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first. Kim Constantino owns a hair salon in Monmouth County, New Jersey, and she's a strategic life coach with a story of how she never gave up no matter what life threw in her path. In her book, Tragic Beginnings to Fairy Tale Endings, Dreams Really Do Come True. Now, tell me how your business led you to leadership training. I joined the John, John Maxwell group, and he's just brilliant. He's wrote like 125 books, and he's all about leadership. He goes around the world and teaches people like how to become a leader. But he always says the hardest person to lead is always yourself. So true. Because of my um, leadership training and stuff, it's expanded my awareness that, you know, I was capable to do so many more things. You know, I think once you lead yourself, you have self-worth and self-value. And then you're not trying to fill it by outside things like, you know, people or food or, you know, addictions, you start to like love who you are. And then you start believing in yourself more. And then I had like 25 journals. And I thought, you know, and I had a friend, this guy, Lonnie, who works for Time Life magazine, and he wanted to write my life story years ago, but then he got another job, but we started it. But I never finished it. So I thought, oh, let me take those things that I did with him, and then take my journals And I had a young kid that I cut his hair for years and his whole family's hair. And I said, hey, KJ, because I knew he was a writer. Would you want to take my um, journals and read them all and put them on just like a character? He's like, yeah, that'd be great. So, you know, he started. He's like, Kimmy, you had such accuracy of your childhood. He's like, I can't believe how easy it was to put the story together. But I had like 20 journals and I wrote in them all the time. When did you start writing in journals? When I was probably about, so I guess I met my daughter's dad when I was 15. Oh. And she told me, Kimmy, write, write journals about your life. Like everything that happened to you as a kid, write, like, you know, she knew I was very broken, you know, and I didn't have a mom. My mom left when I was young. So she really encouraged me. She said that probably bring a lot of healing to me to just write everything down that, that I could remember and that I, you know, what the things that have happened to me and like my father's girlfriends and two drug addicted parents couldn't lead themselves at all, who separated because my father was physically abusive. He was abusive his whole life, actually, to all the women he, he had in his life because he was so hurt because hurt people hurt people. And his parents had him and they separated and then they had two separate families that both didn't want him. Oh. So he was the unwanted child. And then my real mom had a mother who was like, I think a foster kid of 19 children. So she was not loved very much. And she had three kids and then got divorced. And then my mother was a product of that. And they lived in the projects in South Amboy her whole life. So poverty stricken, you know, um, a lot of dysfunction. My mother became a methadone addict young, young. So she, my dad died 45 years old. My mother died 56 years old. Oh my gosh. But my mom left when I was about three, three or four. 
and she never came back. But I found her when I was about 15 because I struggled with that. I mean, having a drug addicted father, he was in pornographic stuff and, you know, he was angry. He was so hurt, but he was emotional. If that makes sense. A lot of times drug addicts are emotional yeah. because they have feelings. Right. So, you know, we grew up with him. And my uncle buddy sexually molested me and abused me as a child as well. So I had a tragic beginnings. It was hard. Oh, my God, Kim. How did you keep going? Well, I guess, you know, you go through things. I was suicidal, like, at 15, 16, 17. That's why my mom, my daughter's dad, you know, I mean, it's so awesome, though, like, the way God will turn it around somehow, right? Like, she loved me like a real mother, even though my mother couldn't, but she did. And uh, so I started to call her mom mom because I started dating him when I was 15. But we were both young and I was such a train wreck and he was young and good looking. And, you know, his dad was a big drinker. And so, you know, he drank and he but he lived life on the edge where I was very introverted. I wasn't introverted in my personality. I was introverted in my limitations of like, I didn't know what travel was. I didn't you know, your, your world becomes so small when you have so much dysfunction. Yeah. There, there's a great movie called The Room that actually is a perfect scenario of kind of the way my mindset was as a teenager, you know, because I just felt so kind of depressed and so like limited that this little kid, the woman got abducted by somebody and he made a shed and he, that became her like home. And he'd always feed her every day, but she only had a TV in there, a bed and a closet and a bathroom. And basically he would come with her and lay with her every night. And she had a child. She got pregnant. She had this child. She begged that she could keep the child and he let her. Um, but the child grew up there for like five years, this room. And so she would teach him things, but she never told him like what really happened, of course, because she wouldn't want him to be rejected. But when they finally, she taught him how to escape somehow. Like she said he was sick and he needed a doctor and he kind of rolled him up in a rug and then put him in the back of the truck. And somehow he got out of that rug and like kind of got out of the truck and somebody found him. And when the little boy got rescued, he wanted to go back to that room because he was so conditioned. Right. Right. For, you know, and I was so conditioned as a child to live small that. I struggled to break through that limitation belief system. So then when I was about 21, I gave my heart to God. Somebody's, you know, I was suicidal. I tried to commit suicide like three times because everything was, I lived in animal instinct. I was so, I want to say, um, toxic and dysfunctional because that's what you learn. You become what you know. It's your environment right. that creates you. Right. You know, until you learn something different, you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. That's for sure. And hurt people, hurt people and damage people, damage people. I was hurt and I was damaged because my dad was hurt and he was down. My mother was hurt and damaged. My uncle that molested me, I found out later, my grandfather molested him and, you know, my dad and like, you know, my Aunt Patty and my grandma Barbara. Like, so it was this cycle of such toxic. So at 21, when somebody told me about God, that became my rescue. Right. My, my, refuse. I cried, I mourned, I started to learn that there was a creator or somebody that actually made me like, so I could separate my life from my mother and father and start to learn that somebody higher than them loved me, which was huge, huge. However, I became so indoctrinated that 
I kind of lost my own identity, right? I just still didn't quite know who I was. I knew God loved me a ton. But then in the since I got my salon, this was the real magic. When I got my salon, I fell forward so bad. But of course, because of the conditioning of being a child, I never wanted to fail. And that was my biggest fear was failing. But of course, you know, when any success you have, you have to fail. Right. But that was my turning point. Like, I knew God loved me all along, but I still didn't love myself because I still was dysfunctional, even though I got a lot better. But then I became judgmental. Then I would like look at other people's flaws and compare them. So I felt better about myself. Right. I still became like a critic. Right. But when I got my own salon and I learned to do a mastermind class and it was this book called 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth was the shift. He, John Maxwell taught me that I could learn to love myself. Now, John Maxwell is a great pastor and of faith, but he became a crossover writer. So I clung to this book, but it was the beginning of my, my shift of me becoming really strong. You know, I wasn't emotional anymore. I start, well, it was a process though. Right, but right. The last seven years was my true shift of like, how did I be? How did I get fairy tale endings? How did I learn that I was worth more? You have to see value in yourself to add value to yourself. I had to say a hundred good things about myself. I had to start believing in myself because why would I want somebody else to believe in me if I couldn't believe in me? So I started to grow this mindset of understanding and learning Carl Jung's psychology. You must go within or else you'll go without. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you'll call it fate. Like I start to learn neuroscience and metaphysics in such a simple way that it transformed me. And then, you know, I was able to run my salon. I was able to write three books. I have two more in the workings. I was able to create a course called A Complete Emotional Breakthrough. That's where my power came from. That's awesome, Kim. Can you get to the people who really need this or do we all need it? I guess we all need it. <laughs> exactly. Like who would you think needs it? Like, of course I was thinking hairdressers first, because um, I can connect and resonate with them for sure. Right. But I found that a lot of my customers were needed my coaching because hmm. I'd be, I'd be cutting their hair and they'd be telling me their story. That's why I wrote a book called the secrets of a great therapist. Therapist. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to market. That's my one lack of things. And that's where I seen page publishing was such a benefit. All that I've learned now about publishing, like I would absolutely highly recommend page publishing for sure, because I had a different publishing company before and they were way too expensive. There was no good follow through. It was so dysfunctional where when I got page publishing, it was a very systematic system. The things that they said really were true. Um, they really followed through on there and did it take time? Yeah, it took time. That wasn't, I didn't like that part about it, but everything good takes time. Right. Right. And so me self-publishing, you know, it doesn't do anything if you don't know how to market where page publishing knows how to market things. And they're so good that they give you, you know, your royalties back for working with them. Like it just was all upside. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I thought if I could redo my other book, um, you know, the secrets of a great therapist, I would, I would choose page publishing. Like my next book, I will choose page publishing for sure. I just downloaded all the things that page publishing sent me that to like do. You're a life coach, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. 
All right. So when you're talking to people every day when you're doing their hair, why wouldn't you talk about your book? I do. I have it at my salon. They buy it, but I also give it out for free because you want to have an influence. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's not just about selling a book. Right. It's about transforming people's lives. It's about giving them hope. It's about giving them purpose and showing them that no matter what you go through in life, you can get through it. But the core of getting through life is self-love and self-value. Right. You know, if you don't if you don't see value in yourself, you can't add value to yourself. And I think that's the most important thing that I love to do for people. Right. They say, do something that you love so much that if you had to do it for free, you would for the rest of your life. You know, I do have a TikTok and I have like eight, almost 18,000 followers on my TikTok. That's great. So I have marketed my book on TikTok. Okay. You know, so, you know, I mean, you just do what you can and then you got to trust your higher power for the rest, right? Yep, that's for sure. Faith has got to come in there and you got to believe it too. You know, you got to believe in yourself enough to know that money's energy, you know, and whatever you give out comes back. Yeah, for sure. How'd you feel when it came in the mail? I felt awesome. I felt like accomplished. I felt like, you know, if it saves one person's life um, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, then it was worth every every bit of doing it and all the pain that I had to go through as a child through my childhood. And, you know, it's to give people inspiration and hope that, you know, the world is crazy. People need hope in this world. That's for sure. And they need that power. They need to know something above themselves and above their circumstances loves them way more. And that's why I call it the unseen forces. Those unseen forces are always for you and never against you. You just have to believe it. So true. Kim, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Alice. Aurelia L. Spencer is a Reiki master using general hand movements to guide the flow of energy through the body. And she also does Akashic Records readings to help people get rid of limiting beliefs and attain soul level awareness. So she's all about energy and healing. And her book, Mama, Where Did Nana Go? could be considered a form of healing. Aurelia, have you always been a writer? Um, that's funny. <laughs> I grew up writing poetry. My 20s and 30s, I used to write little, like, skits, um, but um, I, I never wrote a book until this year. So um, it was maybe, like, February that I wrote this, this children's book. What inspired you? You know, kind of an epiphany. I, it it kind of came just out of thin air, so to speak. Um, but I was thinking about... Um, my grandmother and, you know, growing up with her and all the things she taught me and the things we used to do together. Um, and then I was remembering, um, because she lived in Indiana um, at the time. I lived in Minnesota, actually, then. And um, coming back home after she passed and um, seeing the empty house and then somehow looking in her room <laughs> like she might be there, but just, just feeling that void. And then I thought, wow, kids, how do they process that? You know, come to this understanding that uh, their loved one is still always with them in the way they live their life and the, when they do the things that they used to do with that loved one, 
that's how they keep that loved one present. And I just started writing. So many people say that they get a feeling, you know, Mm -hmm. suddenly just feel this urge almost Mm, to get their thoughts down. So it's about um, a little girl named Lulu. And the little girl is me. And the book walks you through the things that Lulu does with her grandmother. So they're baking in the kitchen. Uh, She's outside with her grandmother planting flowers. You know, they're making tea. She's doing her grandmother's hair. All the things that I did, you know, with my grandmother. And then one morning, Lulu realizes her grandmother didn't get her breakfast ready. You know, she's not in the kitchen. And she's like, where is my grandma? You know, and her grandmother is still in the bed. And her grandmother explains to her that she's not feeling well, but she tells her how much she loves her and she's so proud of her. And then the next morning, Lulu goes to her grandmother's room and she's not there. And so she asks her mom, you know, mama, where did Nana go? And, you know, her mom helps her explain, you know, she won't be back, but she's always with you. And the book then shows Lulu in the kitchen baking her pound cake like her grandma did, and she's out planting flowers, and she's combing her own hair the way her grandma taught her. And she realizes her grandmother is with her. And then it ends with, you know, the grandmother told her, you know, to always look up, you know, in the sky. And when you see a star, that's me. And so the very last page of the book, she's looking up at a star, and she knows her grandmother is there watching over her. That is so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> I get I'm like choked up now just talking about it, but it's it's the story of my childhood. What kind of reaction have you gotten to the book? So I have a niece who has two small children. <laughs> And she read it to them and they were just saying, you know, auntie, we love the book, you know, and um, other family members found it moving. Even as adults, it took them into that inner child because, you know, even in our my extended family, we've had several losses this year. And, you know, a few family members have said how it has helped them even to uh, grieve the loss of, you know, the family members that we lost this year. Um, You know, I didn't want to go a religious route or, you know, get into, you know, the afterlife and all of that. But it's more of just the, the presence, just that energy, you know, feeling that takes you back to the memories and the times you spent with that loved one and knowing that in that way, they are always with you. Um, because they're doing a Facebook page, a YouTube channel, um, Instagram, all of these things. So I'm going to, once it's all done, um, I can set up uh, local book signings. And then hopefully from that, it may lead to um, children's groups where I can read the book to them. Are you going to keep writing? Yes, I am. I started thinking about my grandfather. And so I have started a second book now on the relationship I had with my grandfather because he used to take me fishing. and um, It just seemed like every time I needed him, he was there. <laughs> and so um, 
of course, it's going to be Lulu, the little girl, um, but with her grandfather. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. An eBay business, Baking, now published author. Karen Haberland is a woman of many talents and happiest when she has a variety of things going on. The name of her book is my first question. Does the moon have a pillow? It actually does. It actually does. It does. It has a pillow. That's so good to know. So where did writing fit in here? Did you keep a journal or? It never did. It's just this was sort of one of those random things that fell into my lap. How'd that happen? Well, I had picked my son up from preschool and he had just turned five and they had gone to the planetarium. So we got to talking about it, and then he asked me if I thought the moon had a pillow. (laughs) And we got to talking about that, and that's the basis for the book. When he was talking to you, is that when you, the lightning bolt struck? No. Oh, no. It struck quite a bit later as I was thinking back on just how sweet it, it was and how it, it was it was good that I was kind of teasing it from him to get him to give me ideas or, or to give me feedback on my um, ideas. So how long did it take from the conversation till? Probably a month. Oh, okay. So not long at all. But then it took another 14 years to get it published. What? 14? What were you doing? <laughs> well, I would send it out here and there and I never knew what I was doing and never heard a word. And finally, one one day, I got a call back. So you were sending out to various publishers over the years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how did you find this one? How did you find Paige? Completely randomly. What happened? I just stumbled across them um, online, and they said that they review um, everything that's turned in to them. So I turned it in and got a phone call from a guy named Stan. Great. Best phone call ever, right? It is. It was such a shock. <laughs> So how do you lay out your book? How's the story go? It really is simply him and I talking back and forth about what the moon could possibly use for something to sleep on at night and what sort of things might be comfortable or potentially uncomfortable to sleep on. Like one idea is a star. And my son points out that stars are very pointy and the moon can't have a pointy place to sleep. He needs a soft pillow. And then I point out to him, what about a rocket ship? And he was like, Mom, you're so silly. Rockets are really loud and go really fast. And the moon can't have that for a pillow. So we just keep on talking. And I asked him what he thought the moon could use. And he came up with a cloud. Oh. Because clouds are soft. Right. Just like his pillow. Did this become a springboard for maybe some other ideas? I have two more books that I've already got started in my brain. In your brain? Yes. Is it going to take another 14 years? No. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) One is, is going to be something along the lines of Winston and Darby go to the special dog park. Okay. I'm working on the idea of a dog park inside a dog park for dogs with special needs. Oh. Because I want to speak to inclusivity. Okay. I know as a child who stuttered, I was bullied horrendously. And I've seen that with my own son and my friend's kids. And you see it in the um, animal world. True. 
Yes. That dogs are dogs are passed by if they don't have one eye or if they've lost a leg or, you know, are deaf. And the the two two of the pugs that we've had both were basically deaf by the end. Oh. So I thought that might be a kind of a nice way to tie a um, children's book and a book about pugs into a story about inclusivity. Is it a children's book as well? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you like writing children's books? So far. (laughs) Did you get to read your book to any kids? I went to my first preschool last week and read to 53 and four-year-olds. Oh, how was that? It was a hoot. An absolute hoot. They loved it. What did they say? They mostly wanted to talk about their shoes. Their shoes? Their shoes. Why? Which I just thought, I don't know. It was just because they were all sitting down and they all had their feet out, stuck out in front of them and they wanted to talk about their shoes. I just thought it was precious. But they did, they got the book though, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Did they have some ideas on a pillow for the, for the moon? They actually didn't. They did not. No, I think just because there was, you know, there was 25 three, three-year-olds and then that many four-year-olds. And I think all the excitement of being with the other couple classes and all these kids, I think they were just so excited. They sort of didn't focus perhaps the way they needed to. Well, did they enjoy your book, do you think? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They were very excited. And it just, it just made my whole day. You're going to keep doing that kind of thing? I am. I'm going to try to go to one preschool a week for a year, and I'm going to keep track of the number of children I read to. And at the end of the year, I will give that dollar amount to the pug uh, rescue as a donation. That's really nice. Yeah, because we're very um, active with our local pug rescue. I didn't know there was a pug rescue. Um, each state has at least one. Big states have multiple. Well, what's the deal with pugs? Why do they just pugs that are not perfect pugs? Um, it's pugs that maybe someone lost their job and can't keep their dog. Oh. And they need to have it re, uh, rehomed. Could be someone's moving. Could be somebody had a surprise a litter of pugs. Oh. All dog breeds uh, benefit from their own rescues. So if a purebred pug um, ends up in a shelter, they're almost immediately pulled into their local pug uh, rescue because folks who are into their pure, pure breed or mostly pure breed dogs are really into their dogs. And that is especially true for pugs. What's the big deal about that? It's hard to have a bad day when you come home to the grunting and the snorting and the little uh, wiggle bottom it's just, it's so hard to have a bad day. And we've had three pugs, and now we have a pug mix. And he definitely acts like a pug when it comes to food. <laughs> but he's pug and chihuahua and cavalier King Charles. Now that's a mix. He is a funny looking little thing. But his I... mother was all pug, and she came into the pug a rescue with four little boy babies. And we took one of the little boy babies. So that's why your next book is going to focus on pugs. It is going to feature our last two pugs, Darby Ophelia and Winston Theodore Francis. Okay. Which stands for WTF. (laughs) Which in the world of pugs means where's the food. (laughs) 
great. Because that is how you know your pug is sick is when they won't eat. Uh, there you go. All right. Well, I you got a couple of books in you there. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, listen, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, absolutely. It was yeah. a pleasure. I appreciate it. You have a great day. Yep, you too. All righty. Bye-bye. Yep, thank you. Bye. There are some things Anthony D'Augustino believes we need to talk about, and the title of his book spells it out. Prejudiced, Racism and Tribalism, a primer for white people. Now, as a psychiatrist, you know how important it is to talk about difficult subjects, but why these topics and why now? You know, for my whole life, I've been reading articles about people who say, well, Americans need to have a conversation about race, but they never really go into just how we do that and what, you know, how shall we do such things? And if we do such things, is that a good thing or will that cause us even more problem. So it's sort of, you know, looking at American the last few years, it looks like it just causes us more problems. But, uh, you know, I figure, well, why not cause one more problem? Uh (laughs) And uh, I think prejudice, racism, and tribalism are are variations on, on prejudice, I think. They're just different types. But they, but they are different, and I think it's useful to for Americans who are interested in what's going on in the world to look at those and what these those words and what they mean. For example, if somebody says somebody is a racist, well, what is a racist? So I thought I I, I thought I should go through the trouble of trying to figure that out. So I looked it up in a dictionary. <laughs> I looked at different definitions. And you know, it is kind of different from think people are prejudiced. I also hear people talking about being free of prejudice or I don't see color. Um, I'm wondering what planet those people were raised on because I think everybody has their prejudices. Um, I think of a person who's free of prejudices is either delusional or a liar. Okay. So, uh, so I think it's you know why not take a look at what is prejudice? Where do we see it? Do we see it in courts of law? Do we see it in political practice? Do we see it in everyday? Do we see it in a group of first graders? Of course we do. Prejudice is everywhere. It's useful to know what's a prejudice and what's not, but sometimes. It's it's very difficult to to tell the difference, but I thought it was at least worth a discussion. In your opinion, what's the difference between racism and prejudice? Well, prejudice is, you know, it's a way of thinking about things. It's usually an incorrect way of thinking about things. So when we say, is it a prejudice or is it a fact, you know, we're trying to make that distinction. I think we all make that distinction. So if somebody says, you know, the bears are better than the lions... Of course, they're not this year. But, you know, that is that a prejudice or is that based on some kind of rational argument? If we say that so-and-so is guilty of some particular crime, is that based on some kind of fact? Or is that because we have certain prejudices in certain people and we, we think that they're guilty even though they may not be? So it, it, those are, you know, facts and prejudices are different. But I, I don't think anyone's ever free of prejudice. And I I think I talk in the book about different kinds of prejudice. I talk about religious prejudices. You know, I grew up in a particular religious 
faith. Um, my wife grew up in a different religious faith. So our, our beliefs are, do we have prejudicial beliefs about these different things? Well, yeah, we, we kind of do. I grew up a Catholic. She grew up a Lutheran. You know, was Luther a good guy or a bad guy? Well, it depends on how you were educated. You know, from our point of view, he was a heretic. From her point of view, he was a visionary and a wonderful person. So how do we talk about those things? In courts of law, you know, uh, years ago, you know, Sirhan Sirhan shot Bobby Kennedy. And after the trial at the university where I was, we had a, a meeting of the lawyers who were involved in that trial. You know, they all looked upon the situation. I mean, there was an objective fact there. Did he shoot him or not? And it was, I mean, he did shoot him. But there were, you know, so many other issues related to the trial that involved prejudicial thinking that the lawyers were kind of good at. A lawyer wants to win a case. So, you know, you're going to offer a very prejudicial view of what happened, depending on whether you're the defense or whether you're the prosecution. Now, both sides will give what they view as a true view, but they're also playing to the judge or to the jury, so they're very sensitive about prejudicial things. Okay. So that's an example. So we live with that every day, and we have to find ways to deal with it. I thought it would be useful to just go over these different things. Racism, if you look it up in the in, in the dictionary, it's not just bad people who hate other people. I mean, there are bad people who hate other people. But if you look it up in, say, for example, a dictionary, it turns out to be kind of a, a doctrine. You know, it's a doctrine that one race is superior to the other. Now, you could have a person who, you know, who just dislikes all kinds of different people. Are they racists? Well, unless they believe, unless they fit the definition, I would probably say not. I think there are a lot of folks who just aren't familiar with other kinds of people and they have prejudicial ideas about them. That doesn't necessarily mean they adopt a policy of government that mandates that some people are better than others. So the definition is a little different. The same way with tribalism. I think, you know, most people are kind of tribal. You tend to hang with your group or your family or your culture. You know, even though there's no reason to believe people are really different, you know, yet, you know, for some reason, human beings have grown up with this kind of tribal instinct in which they feel safer around people they're, they're familiar with or they're used to, and they feel unsafe around people they're unfamiliar with or not useful. I thought it was you know, worth just having a discussion on these different different kinds of things. Your, your subtitle, uh, A Primer for White People. I, the reason I, the, the title is because this is not a study in depth of each issue. And I'm not saying I, you know, I have an academic background in all of these areas, but I think there are certain bits of information that we should take a look at. And I put white people. It's not that I'm against non-white people reading the book. I'd be happy if they read the book and gave their thoughts. But I think white white people in this country, at least, have had control of most things. Like Most presidents have been white people. Most senators have been white people. Most 
congressmen have been white people. And as a consequence, most most policemen, at least you know, in the last hundred years, have you know probably been white people. So, you know, white people have these institutions. Of, they have control of institutions that control things like governments and industry. So I think it's you know I think there's certain basic level of information about these things that white people should to think about. I'm a white person and you know I care about white people. I mean it's not like I don't care about other people, but I don't like to see white people going crazy and acting really nutty. So maybe if they had some basic information about some of these things, they wouldn't act so crazy. Well you sound like you'd really like a you'd like to get a discussion going. Right. That would be that would be fun. I think that would be fun. If unless somebody shoots me instead. Oh, no, but, no, don't you say know, that. I, I I don't like getting death threats and I don't think I would, but you know what I mean? It's sort of like when you start a discussion about anything like this, some people, you know, get threatened. I'm not too worried about that. I'm I'm too old to worry about that. I would like to get the book out there if possible. I just talking to you is at least one effort. Right. But um, yeah, I would like to hear what people think. I, I don't necessarily think that every opinion expressed in this book is correct and, um, you know, the, the last word on these various subjects. But, you know, I talk about them and, you know, if people would like to react to them, that would be, I would find that interesting. I, I mean, I don't know where you live, but I have a feeling you've lived in one place for a relatively good period of time, right? Yeah. So people know who yes, you I are. Am. Would you do a talk in a library or at a bookstore? Um, sure, sure. Of course I would. Um, I would love to do that. It's just that I'm not sure how one does that. Well, you got to go I'm go not... to your library and tell them you wrote a book or do you have a local paper that could do um, maybe do a, an, an op-ed on you or on the book or... You know, look, we've got. Yeah, our... I suppose I could. I'm just, you know, I have not spent my life, you know, lobbying people to listen to what I'm saying or thinking. So to me, it's a bit uncomfortable to just walk into some place and say, "By the way, I've written this book, and let's have a discussion about it." I, I'm, you know, I've, I'm, I just have no clue about how one would do that. So I wrote the book in hopes that, you know, but but even if. You know, even if not a lot of people read it, I mean, some people have already, and I've gotten some feedback. Uh, and um, but you know, I just felt the need to write it. Yeah, I would love to see people talk and not fight, and not absolutely refuse to hear another point of view, because I think I see that a lot more than I ever have as a reporter out on the street. It's you think the way I think, and if you don't think the way I think, I'm not interested in hearing how you think or understanding or even just listening to why you don't understand the way I think, and it doesn't matter what the other person thinks. Just listen, and we can't, I, I feel like we've lost the ability to just have an honest discussion. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I think that's uh, obvious, and I think I have felt it in the same way you have, and maybe that's one of the reasons I decided I, I thought I would write this book. I think it's, you know, again, I'm the, I'm the author, so I 
course, I think it's rational, but I mean, I think I've tried to raise these topics in a rational way. I mean, I wrote a chapter on women. I mean, it's not all about race. Uh, I wrote a chapter on women, gave giving some of my thoughts and prejudices about women. I wrote a chapter on Mexicans coming to America. I wrote a chapter on Muslims coming to America. I, I just gave some thoughts, what you know, what I would view as sort of elementary historical events that might be interesting if someone had an interest in that um so it's 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 about different topics related to prejudice or race or tribalism in which i you know i don't go in depth on every subject um i have a discussion on native americans and my thoughts about that Many people would probably disagree with some of my thoughts on that. And I probably historically have had more of a conservative view on most of these things. So, you know, it's not, I I don't preach to people about race or anything like that. I just give sort of my historical overview as I understand it. Okay. Um, So that's what I try to do. And, you know, people that I have read it so far find it pretty interesting, but, you know, you know, I don't know if they're the general public. Well, I guess you're going to find out, aren't you? Hopefully. Well, hopefully, yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. You're welcome, and thanks for calling. All right. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Dina Harris works at a Christian bookstore in Maryland where her book, My Not-So-Christian Walk with the Holy Spirit, is getting some attention. Now... This book was a surprise even to you, wasn't it? It's, it's kind of funny. No, I've never even read a book. I, one book that I did read that interested me a long time ago is the book A Million Little Pieces. And now I just read the Bible. I, I'm not a reader at all. I, I, my, my brain kind of, you know, I can't stay focused on things. But God inspired me to write this book. How did he inspire you? Tell me how that happened. It was two and a half years following the devil's dance for me. I'll Take you back a little bit. I'm a recovering alcoholic, dabbled in a lot of drugs, and I was gay for 35 years of my life. I was in a homosexual relationship. I've been raped and molested, so I was afraid of men. And long story short, my very first girlfriend that I had when I was 17, 18 years old, we ran away from home back when, you know, being gay was not the thing. We were Catholic, too, so, I mean, definitely— and fast forward, I married a man because I was afraid of men. But, you know, as time went on, you know, uh, I took karate, things like that. I married a man, a retired Navy SEAL, and I felt safe with him. He's the first guy I felt safe with. So I started going to church. I quit drinking. I found God. And the devil kind of said, hmm, you know, what are you doing? I was not happy in my marriage. I'd married for 12 years. I only married him after 30 days. So that tells you something. But my first girlfriend popped into my head. And I said, I wonder how she's doing again. I went back to California. That's where I'm from. Um, got back into drinking and drugging. And for two and a half years, I didn't know what a narcissist was. And I learned very quickly that it was a spiritual battle. I could see that. But in the midst of all that, I went into rehab. I came out of rehab thinking I could cast out her demons. And I was so wrong. 
oh my goodness, you, you can't, yeah, you can't do that. I'm like, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm casting out your evil spirits. And, and she was begging me to do that. She was like, please don't let the evilness take me because she would just change at night. You know, she would work from home and at night her eyes would change. She would just become a totally different person. I'm like, what is going on? There's a lot of evilness going on in that house. And I mean, and I was telling her, you're changing. It's like you're changing at night. And she wouldn't believe it. I started recording things. I started doing videos. And I'm just like, look, this is this is really, really strange. And but I could see that it was a demonic thing. God kind of spanked me. You know, it's like I have I have a purpose. I know I have a purpose. The next morning, I flew to Texas to visit with my grandchildren, and we were cleaning the room, listening to Christian music, and a fire started downstairs in the room that I slept at. No one was there. A lamp tipped over, caught on fire, burnt up the whole half of the house, up the wall, up near where my grandkids and I were singing. So we had to run out, right? So, okay, that's one thing. So my head is spinning out of control. So I go back to California. And I'm arguing with this person, you know, my girlfriend, and I know now that she knows now that she's a narcissist. So it was a battle was on. There was no holes barred. Everything was down. So I'm leaving the house. I stay in a hotel in Ojai, which is about two hours away, taking a nap with my dog. And another fire starts in the bathroom, in the ceiling fan, nothing on, nothing. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm over here casting out demons. And it was just so surreal. I could see the evilness in her. And then once I'm like, dude, you're a narcissist. Gloves came off. She was no longer asking me to help her. Don't let the demons take her. She kept saying, please don't let them take me. I don't want evilness to take me. And I have recordings of that. Her and her son, who was 25 years old, were trying to um, break my sanity. They were taking things out of the house, putting them back, moving my shoes, um, just rearranging furniture. Like, why is that like that? What are you talking about? You know, they were like, what is that called? Gaslighting me on a regular, like for about a month and I could not take anymore. I just packed what I could pack in my van and God, God said, write your story, write your story. I'm like, wait, what? What do you mean write my story? I can't even put two thoughts together in my head, write your story. And then along with that, you know, I went to buy a van. They did the bait and switch on me. And it was just kind of like the devil was trying to take me out. Like I have a purpose. I like to feed the homeless and help others. I just do. I mean, that's just my thing. I bought a van. And I wanted to convert it so I can go in California. There's so many homeless people just anywhere, everywhere. It doesn't cost a lot to make a pot of spaghetti, you know, and, a, you know, buy a thing of water and just take it out there. And I got known as a spaghetti girl because that's what I did. That's what I wanted to do. That's how I wanted to live my life going forward. And God was impressing on me that that's what I needed to do. And I needed to tell my story. So what do you do now? Do you still are you still the spaghetti lady? No, because I'm all the way in Maryland now. Oh, no, I see. I called my ex-husband, and I told him I'm writing a book about what was going on. I still kept in communication with him in Maryland. And this is still my house, too, so we still um, own a house together. And I asked him if I could come back to finish my book. And he said, sure. So I'm upstairs. He's downstairs. I finished my book. I work at a Christian bookstore now. I still kind of help with the homeless as far as my church goes. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist now because... The Holy Spirit impressed on me to find a church at worship on the Sabbath. I didn't know anything about Sabbath. I thought Sunday was a day to worship God. But in all my travels and, and coming from California back to Maryland, it was just I could not get enough of Scripture, listening to the Bible, listening to um, stories about the Bible, drive through history, the apostles, and just 
uh, Doug Baxter and just, oh, I mean, just, I can't get enough. Are you able to do a book talk at your bookstore? So we're working on it. Yes, we're going to do a, a book signing um, uh, in, in the store. You kind of came full circle then. Yeah, yes. I feel that God just kind of stepped back and let me do my thing. And, you know, I could see and feel his presence along the way. Like, all right, that's enough. You know, that, you know, because he doesn't give you more than you can handle. And this is a, and and I'm a perfect, you know, example of that. It's like, oh my gosh. And I was like, just wanted to drive my car off a cliff in Ohio. You know, I was, I was that desperate. I was that lost. And it wasn't the drugs or alcohol because I had stopped that. It was the devil. It was, it was the spirits. It was his minions just like, Coming out of Ohio, I took in out a $3,500 cash advance on my credit card because I needed, you know, a place to live. And my aunt stole that when I stayed at her house for two nights. So you feel that all of these things were happening to you. They were a message. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So are you going to keep writing? You know, my boss said your book's not finished. So he says there's more, There's there should be more to it. All right. Uh, I, I stopped at... I'm on my way to Maryland. So, yeah, and he's, he's right. So I may, I may continue and just kind of finish off because there's a lot more that happened now that I can relax and look back at what happened. There's so much more that I could add to the story. God's like, yeah, write this down so that I can hopefully, you know, share my testimony with others. Let them know, look, battle against, not against flesh and blood, but against the evil spirits of this world. And I don't know about you, but I know end time is coming. And his minions and the devil are out in full force. Misery loves company. There you go. There you go. Well, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, thank you very much. Have a blessed day, hon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Lawrence Allwine is a tough guy to keep down. He retired four times. The first time he was a combat engineer and retired from the Army as a lieutenant colonel. Then he worked in transportation as a consultant and finally a project manager working with hospitals, prisons, jails, and building schools in L.A. As a civil engineer, he had a paper entitled Recycling for Survival, published in a magazine for the Corps of Engineers. And now we have his book, The Earth Experiment, inspired in part by Uncle Cy Robertson from Duck Dynasty. My wife bought me a book. Uh, Cy Robertson wrote a book, and uh, he was in the military in Vietnam the same time I was. And uh, I read that book, and I said, crap, I've done all this stuff and more. So that got me thinking about maybe I ought to continue on with my stuff and getting it published. But the thing that got me really thinking about it, uh, one of the priest friends that I know, he read it, and he told me I should have it published. So. About a year or two after that, I decided, well, let's go ahead and try it. So I used to sit out on the front porch in the evenings with my dog laying out in the front yard and um, looking up into the sky and couldn't see very many stars. You could see some of them because being around Denver, the lights and stuff, you couldn't really see much. So I got to thinking about this and just think, you know, we were just infinitesimal particles in the universe that God created. And uh, and you see all these stars and all the planets, the billions and billions of stars and planets that surround them. Uh, I got to thinking about that. You know, there's got to be life someplace else. So I I started writing 2012. And uh, it took me about five years to put the first part of the book together. And it's called The Earth Experiment. And when I got done with that, I gave it to different people as gifts. 
my draft of that. And it was around 30 pages or so. And everybody came back and said they really liked it. They, got, they thought about these things too, because I'd mentioned stuff that people think about. And uh, so the purpose while I wrote it was to get people something to think about. And uh, after I got done with that, you know, I sat around for a while and got to thinking, you know, you know, I'm not done yet. So I started thinking about other things associated with the earth and what's happened with the earth. And uh, when I did that, I got to thinking, you know, nothing has changed since the very beginning of what's going on in slavery, mass murders, cannibalism. Abortion, I addressed all kinds of things associated with that's been going on throughout the history of mankind since the earth was created. And uh, so I spent quite a bit of time on that too, doing a lot of research. And uh, I identified all the uh, things that were happening for exterminating different races of people in different countries, uh, genocide and so on. And the Germans weren't the only ones that did it during World War II. And so I address a lot of those issues that happen throughout history. And then when I got done with that, you know, I'm still not done. (laughs) Yeah. How do you lay it out? Do you present arguments? Yeah, I put an outline together. I need to go into different things I want to address in the whole thing. Regarding genocide and so on like that, I just did a lot of research on that to figure out what happened throughout the history with the different people and how many millions of people they slaughtered. And I just kept going with that. And every time I started, I would think of something else. Yeah, it's one thing I, I like to include in that. I like it was a subject of abortion and uh, compare that to genocide also. And uh, so that there, to me was also a form of genocide that's happening throughout the world right now. And it continues to happen. So, yeah, I, you know, I, the more I wrote, I thought of more stuff to include. So it wasn't. Starting starting it with an outline and just going down and writing it, I, I didn't do that. You know, the more I wrote, the more I thought about including it. And when I would get to a certain point, then I was thinking, you know, I got to bring a conclusion to this. And that's that's basically the way my style of writing was. I'm looking at your explanation of what's in the book. And, you know, have you ever wondered if we're alone? Is there only one universe? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about UFOs and how much does the military know about aliens? And are they telling us? Do you do you go down that road as well? James Webb Space Telescope got put out there. Yes. I get a lot of comments from people. The astrophysicists and everybody that's involved with astronomy. That's one thing I was interested in as a, as a kid, making telescopes myself. But that's just thinking about the universe and going back to the Big Bang. And uh, one of the recent things someone came up with on black holes associated with the universe, someone came up with a thing that but when uh, things just get eaten by black holes, it goes into like a funnel and it goes to a point. That was the starting point from the Big Bang, but it goes out the other side as a white hole. And that's why I said there might be more than one universe. Each one of these universes, he might be doing experiments like the Earth, what I call the Earth experiment, just to see what happens in that particular universe with a particular planet or maybe more planets. Right. The experiments was to see what happens. So is that your next book? Uh, maybe. I've got, 
I got a few things in mind that I'm thinking about. So I gave a copy of it to, away to a person and as a gift. And they said, I'm not going to pay you for this. So uh, she gave me she gave me a $20 bill. And uh, <laughs> next day she called me and she said that she wanted two more uh, to give it to her daughters. Great. I thought if Cy could do it, maybe I should do this. There you go. <laughs> see? Well, listen, enjoy the rest of your day and thank you so much. Okay, well, thank you for calling. Sometimes there's a lot of love in small packages. And Eric Berg's book, Good Night, Sweet Dreams, God Bless You, I Love You, fits right into that category. How you doing, Eric? I just wrote this book. Uh, I was the only one I wrote. I, I just uh, I did it probably about seven or eight years ago, actually. Why? Because I thought it was a very... That nice routine that I do with my kids every night of my life, every night of their life was the last words out of my mouth, and I wanted to get other people to do the same thing. How many kids do you have? Two. How old are they? 19 and 14. So how old were they when you were inspired? At the time, Bella was probably like 12, and Katie was probably like five, six, something like that, seven, but... I've been doing that. I did that since the first night I brought my first kid home. And I put her to bed. I kissed him on the forehead. Good night. Dreams on one cheek. God bless you on the other. And I love you. One more big kiss. And then say good night. And that's it. And that's the last words out of my mouth every night. What else do you talk about in the book? I talked about like the... Every day is different. We went through the book went through all the seasons, the different things you do in the, in the all year long. Every day is a little different, but they all end the same. Wrote about riding bikes and going to amusement parks and beaches and camping and you know playing with your friends and going to the movies and apple picking and building snowmen and and things like that. You know, and, and then and, you know just various things that we just did all the time. You know, depending on what time of year and. And I mentioned all the mentioned the holidays, of course, and the part of the part of it too, and explained. You know, didn't I use the word Christmas? I said the holidays because I was trying to keep it more for everybody. You know, and uh, it sounds like your kids really changed your life. Yeah, I guess that'd be the answer. <laughs> yeah, your life before kids compared to your life after kids, big difference. Yeah, the biggest blessing that ever happened to me. I love my kids. Well, what'd they think of your book? I think they think it's cute, but they're also at that age where, you know, like, they they kind of turn their head now. You know, they still let me do it to some degree, but they get older, you know, and kids get like, you know, oh, don't touch me. (laughs) Yeah. You must have felt the need to get this message to other parents. Did something happen that made you say, you know, I got to write this down? No, not necessarily. I just thought it was a good message that I think that I think all children that should be the last words out of their parents' mouth. Not not shut up and go to bed or turn the light off and shut up and go to bed or whatever. I don't know. I just thought that good if if, if that was the last words all children heard. Do you get to tell people about your book? You know, I, I wanted to the the plan was to like go around and maybe try to sell them and put up flyers and stuff like that in the different stores and, and stuff because I used to do door to door sales before I got in construction, but then just went back to work recently and it got real busy and a lot of stuff going on this summer. But that, that the plan was to do something like that to, to spread the message. And I bought a bunch of them myself to go around and sell them and stuff, but it, it's been a, it's been a little bit extra busy the last couple months or so, but. 
Yeah. Are you going to keep writing? You know, in, in the perfect world, if it, God, God willing, if I ever made a bunch of money or at least enough to make another book, I would like to make more kids' books. And I, I'd like to actually make a, a charity type of book where I donate a dollar per book towards the children's charities is the real, the total dream, you know, if, if it ever panned out. And then maybe like a series of books where whatever the book is about is what charity I would try to donate to, you know. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, I, yeah, it's, it's it's something I would certainly like to do. We'll see how it all pans out, you know. Yeah. What'd your wife have to say about it? Oh, she definitely thinks it's really cute and stuff. Definitely, yeah. yeah. How'd you feel when you got your book in the mail? Uh, I was extremely excited. It was a very happy day for me because it was a part of a long process. And it, it half and part due to my own delays and different things, but... Uh, it was a long time coming, so I was very excited, yes. So you you, you started it, and then you kind of let it go for a couple of years? Well, I, the thing was written and everything, but just finding someone to do it. The whole publishing thing, like I called all the publishers. They don't even answer the phone. And I literally went out and knocked on a few doors here in Boston, like in publishing companies. They don't even answer the door. Yeah. <laughs> so the finding, finding the paid publishing to produce the book for me and everything and then having to pay for it took a while and all this and that and then you know the, the process of the pictures and stuff it just it did end up taking a while you know but, right but it, I, I've all worked it in the end and I'm very very pleased especially with what they've done for me they really helped a lot I like it a lot great well listen Eric I'm glad I was able to track you down oh no problem I appreciate any help you have to give or any whatever information i've given i hope helps in some way well you'll get a copy of the interview and you're free to post it on social media and then you'll be on the podcast we do a podcast with all of the publishers that are under the reader house uh umbrella there's fulton books there's page books and um you'll be on that and if you want to post this on facebook or instagram or however you want to do it you're welcome to Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. All right. You have a great day. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Reader House Author Roundtable, where authors from all walks of life come together to discuss the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of publishing their books. I'm Alice Stockton Rossini. We hope to see you back here every Saturday night at 8 o'clock or listen to our podcast anytime on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and PodServe, just to name a few. The Author Roundtable is sponsored by Reader House Online Bookstore, where independent new authors come first.